Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 12 as we continue our, our series in the Gospel of Mark and take out your notes from the worship folder. Um, and officially, I'll say Happy New Year to all of you. It's really good to be able to be together and celebrate and start the year this way. I can't think of a better way, actually, than talking about priorities. And, uh, you know, God does this, I think, just over and again. This is a perfect passage to be able to talk about priorities uh, because Jesus gives us what our top priorities should be. Uh, I want to invest my life in what's eternal. Uh, the things around us fade away, uh, but people are eternal. Heaven or hell, people live forever. Uh, God's word is eternal. I want to invest in God's word. And Jesus tells us here how to invest our lives in what's eternal. Last week, I mentioned John Wesley and his final words. Uh, his final words were, the greatest, of, the greatest thing of all is that God is with us. And some historians believe that John Wesley's conversion uh, that led to a revival in England uh, was so powerful because England was headed toward where France had been and the French Revolution. And it seemed like the same thing was going to happen in England. But what a lot of historians point to as being the turning point for them to avoid that was John Wesley's conversion. Um, his coming to faith story, uh, one historian said, was one of the most important historical events of the Western world. Uh, his parents were, were Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Uh, Samuel was a pastor. And Susanna was a very godly woman who gave birth, uh, are you ready for this, to 19 children. John Wesley was the 15th born. Uh, nine of her children did not make it to adulthood, which is often why they had many children in those days. Um, but John Wesley became a professor of Greek and logic at Oxford University. Uh, he was ordained as a pastor in the Church of England. But all of this was before he became a Christian. Uh, and even though Wesley was not yet a true believer, he had dedicated himself to daily prayer, uh, daily Bible study, uh, visiting prisoners, and helping the poor. He thought these things would be part of what we've talked about before, the resume that he could present to God as to why he should be in heaven. He even took the opportunity to do mission work. He was sent from England to do mission work among the American Indians in Georgia. Uh, it was his time in America was not successful at all. He was in great conflict with a lot of the other missionaries that he was working with. The one thing he said he learned in his trip to America was that he was a sinner uh, because things had gone so poorly here. What was positive about the trip is that he made it with some German Christians who were genuinely Christians and who shared with him about having faith in Christ alone for his salvation. Uh, because what we need to get to heaven is nothing. 
And most people don't have that. We want to present something else to God that we've done. And that's what John Wesley was doing. And then he opened his Bible one morning and looked at the very passage we are looking at this morning in Mark chapter 12. And he was particularly hit by verse 34. Look at, we're going to read the whole passage in just a second, but look at verse 34. When Jesus says to this young lawyer, this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And he thought about those verses uh, a lot. And he identified with this, uh, with this young scribe. I mean, he was, they were both highly educated. Wesley was very highly educated. Both of them knew the scriptures well. Both of them, uh, this scribe knew that Jesus was meaning that word for him. But John Wesley said, that was like Jesus speaking directly to me. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So I want to set this in the context of where we've been, uh, because we're in Mark, in Holy Week. Jesus had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey on Monday, uh, he, he, um, on, on Palm Sunday, I mean, on, in chapter 11, at the beginning of chapter 11. And then on Monday, he went into Jerusalem. He used the fig tree to teach them about faith. You might remember that. He cleansed the temple, went back to Bethany. <clears throat> and then on Tuesday and Wednesday, he uses this time to teach and, and uses, gives parables we see in some of the other gospels, but he, this is where we're at now in Holy Week is this teaching time that we have in Mark chapters 12 and 13. And then <clears throat> we'll get to um, Thursday where he has the, the, the last supper with the disciples in Mark chapter 14, uh, probably sometime in 2023. No, we won't go that slow, I promise. <clears throat> so at the top of your outline, it says this, after a series of hostile encounters with Jesus, Earlier in chapter 12, one might expect the next question to also be unfriendly, but it was not. Jesus calls citizens of his kingdom to love God first and to love their neighbor unselfishly. And this religious teacher is positive toward Jesus, and Jesus later praises him uh, and, and describes this man's answer as having understanding. And, and says he's not far from the kingdom of God. So let's read our passage together. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater, no command, there is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's word. So as we look at these verses, I want you to think about how your actions reveal your priorities. Uh, they reveal what you actually believe and, and what your priorities will be in this next year. It's not just what we want our priorities to be. It's not just what we say they are. It's what we do that matters. The first thing we see in this passage is that we're commanded to love God supremely. That's number one on your outline. This religious lawyer comes to Jesus and he, he had overheard the disputes that Jesus had already been having with other Jewish leaders. And he recognizes that Jesus had given them a good answer in verse 28. Uh, according to rabbinic tradition, there are 613 different commandments uh, in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine the heavy burden that would be? to keep all those in your mind and to, to not disobey any of those commandments, man, that would be a heavy burden. So this young lawyer asked Jesus his opinion. Tell me what the greatest of all these 613 different commandments are. And with his answer, Jesus takes us right to the core of what matters most, of what should matter most to us in our own lives. Look at verse 29, uh, and this is also on your outline. I'm to love God for who he is. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's known as the Shema. And Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So Shema Israel. So hear, O Israel. Every devout Jew would say the Shema every morning and every night. Uh, one theologian said that the Shema was as important to Judaism as the Lord's Prayer is to Christianity. It was something that was a regular thing they would say all the time. It's the heart of the Hebrew faith. It, it, and, and what Jesus is saying by quoting it is it's the heart of Christianity as well. <clears throat> so theologically, and the, you've got this on your outline because it's a theological statement that you can meditate on for a while. The Lord is one means that he is unified and unique in his essence and in his existence. So how does that fit with the Trinity of what we believe? We believe that God is one and we believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's like we looked at last week when we looked at Emmanuel for Christmas God is with us. We believe that Jesus is God the Son. We believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is talking about here the essentials of our faith. And as Christians, we affirm that same exact thing. <clears throat> we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So worship is expressing our love to God. 
And that should be our number one priority. Worship should be the first and most important thing that we do. We live lives of worship. We commit our, the reasonable worship is to present our bodies as living sacrifices before God that he can use for his glory. What kind of a God is he? Well, uh, Moses writes in Exodus 34, describes God as the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. And on a, I've already given you a part one of the Hebrew lesson this morning, the meaning of Shema. I'll give you another one. The word for love here is my favorite Hebrew word, and that's the word hesed. And it means covenant love. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, the covenant love that he's talking about here means that even though our love is fickle and our love is unreliable, God can be counted on 100% in all situations and every time to be completely faithful. That's who God is. It's a covenant that he's made with us. That's how God loves us, with this covenant love, with hesed love. That's how he loves you. He loves you with his covenant love. Even though we reject his love, even though we are faithless, it says, he remains faithful to us. And then in verse 30, and this is the next thing on your outline, I'm commanded to love God with all I am. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. How are we to love him? With our all. We give him our all. Four times in this verse, we're called to respond to God's hesed love that never changes with our own love and devotion. The idea of, of heart and soul and strength and, and mind here is, isn't meant to be some psychological analysis of the human personality, but it's a call for us to love God wholly, to love him completely. And so you've got this on your outline. Heart is about my emotions. It's the real me. Soul speaks of the spirit, the self-conscious life. I, I'm, I'm aware of what I'm aware of. I, I want to give everything I'm aware of in me to God. The mind is my intelligence and my thoughts. I want to bring every thought captive to Christ. My strength is my bodily powers. It's my will. Sinclair Ferguson says that God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. My imperfect love for God is my response to his perfect love for me because God loves me perfectly with this covenant love and my, the, the best I give to him, I give him my best. But even my best is nowhere near like his love for me, so it's imperfect. But I give him what I can. I love him because he first loved me, it says in 1 John chapter 4. And we know what love is by what love does. And so all lovers of Jesus, all those who follow him, all Christians refuse to walk in persistent, conscious disobedience to him. So let me ask you, is there an area in your life where you know you are being disobedient to God? Well, you give him that area. You commit that to him. You keep battling against that area of disobedience. 
How do you do that? You confess your sin. You keep imagining it. You, you visualize it, if you will, on the cross. You visualize Jesus dying for that sin. You, you, you can hide God's word in your heart that may be scripture that speaks specifically to you about that sin. And what we are in, what we want to be, we want to be in private when we're all by ourselves. When the only one who sees us is God. And we want to be that same way in public. When, when other people see us. In between Sundays, if you will. When we're with our neighbors and our friends and our family, we want to be the same way in our home as we are when we are here on Sunday mornings thinking, this is the way I want to live my life. We live it in front of our, our spouse and our children and our, our parents and whoever we are. We, we live it in front of them. <clears throat> I love God supremely. And to follow that is number two on your outline. I'm commanded to love others genuinely. Genuinely. So a right relationship with God should result in a sincere love for other people. When Jesus tells this religious lawyer that these two commands go together, uh, he's saying that the way you respond to one shows in all likelihood that you've accepted the other as well. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Mark, says it like this. Jesus shows us that love actually defines the lawful life. And he shows us that the law actually defines the loving life. When Jesus says that all the laws boil down to love God and neighbor, he is saying that we have not fulfilled a law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits. But we must also do and be what the law is really after, namely love. We, we love God because he first loved us. God is love, it says in 1 John 4, 8. And those cannot be divided, love for God and man. That's what Jesus is saying. And this teaching had a powerful influence in the, with, on the lives of the rest of the New Testament authors. John writes in, in 1 John, and, and, and he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. A, a, a claim to love God is a delusion if it's not accompanied by an unselfish love for others. That's why when someone tells me uh, they're a Christian, but they say, I don't have anything to do with the church, I'm going, <clears throat> wow, it, it makes me question whether they really know God. Because someone who loves God will love the church. Because as imperfect as it is, this is what he has given us to love one another here. And, and we get strength here to go out and love others. And this is basically a, a summary of, of, of what John says in 1 John chapter 4. And he looks to the words of, of Jesus to settle, where John looks to the words of, of Jesus to settle any remaining objections. And so don't fool yourself. You can't claim to love the invisible God that you can't see and, and not actively love the Christian brother or sister who's standing right in front of you. We start with the household of God, but we love everyone that, that is in front of us. And in fact, in this parallel passage, he defines who a neighbor is. By it's, it's, the, it's not the, in, in this parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not the guy who uh, 
is your, your Jewish brother there. It was, it was a hated Gentile. It's the people you hate, the people that you think you, you don't want to get along with, that you would never get along with, that we are called to love. So God has intertwined loving him and loving his children. Paul writes this in, this is in Romans chapter 13. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the apostle Paul says. The commandments, he goes on, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, and he knows all 613 are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Paul is saying here is all of God's commandments are good. But he says that there are, they're all combined. They point to God's nature. And God is love. And to break the commandments mentioned would be to, to violate the imperatives of love. Christians love That's what we do. And Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you, what? Love one another. And to be a reflection of that love. You know, I had a friend of mine in college uh, who uh, came to me and he said, Kenny, you've got to pray for for my, he said, this one guy, Clyde was his name, was just like a, He's kind of like a leech. He's with me all the time. And I just don't like him. I can't pray that I would be able to love him with the love of God because I can't do it. I feel, I bristle every time I'm around him. And Clyde, uh, some weeks later, got together with my friend Kent, was his name, and said, Kent, I feel like you're the only guy on this campus who really loves me. My friend Kent was blown away. And he said he was almost knocked over. And he said, Kenny, that was not me. He said, that's an answer to prayer because that was the love of God in me. You know, Romans 5, 5 says, for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. So you have God's love in you. There's people that are difficult for you to love. You don't, you, you don't feel like you can love them. That's okay because God wants to love them through you. That's what this is talking about. Our love for others is called an obligation because we are permanently and forever in debt. We're obliged to Christ for the love that he has poured out on us on the cross, what we celebrated this morning at the table. And such love is radicalized, uh, such love radicalized the call to love one another. That's on your outline. Verse 31, the second is this, is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So it's this qualifying clause as yourself that makes it so radical. And you think, well, what about somebody with a low self-esteem? How do they love other people? Well, you know what? Even if you have a low self-esteem, you will find something to eat. Even if you have a low self-esteem, you'll find some place to lay your head. You have to beg for it. Maybe you're sleeping outside, but you'll find some. So you love others the way you love yourself. 
An example of how radical this is comes through the story of the Great Samaritan I already mentioned. God does not leave this up to our imagination how we're to love others. So when Jesus says, love, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus 19. And look at the list on your outline from Leviticus 19. He does not leave it to our imagination how to love one another. But there are all these things. Care for the poor. Don't steal. Don't lie. Be fair in your business dealings. And so on. It goes on. But all that love, what that leads to, and this is the next blank on your outline to fill in, is true sacrifice. Such love means true sacrifice. What does this mean for you? It's like what Paul says in Philippians 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others. Why do we do that? Because we should have the same attitude in us that's in Christ Jesus. And then the passage goes on. Read Philippians 2. Memorize Philippians 2. Recently, I, I, I heard of some people here doing some very practical things to help other people when they see homeless people. I, I, I saw one, uh, someone that had a, an envelope and they said they had, they just got like 50 $1 bills and they would just give a dollar bill every time they saw someone. Um, I heard of somebody else and it was a, a little nine-year-old girl who said to her mom, we need to prepare some sacks and, and pass these sacks out every time we see someone who, who's homeless. And so I can't remember everything they had in the sack, but toothpaste and a toothbrush and hand sanitizer or soap or something. And, and they would pass these out all the time. Uh, ask the Lord what he wants you to do and, and maybe step out of your comfort zone a little bit. When you see someone here on Sunday mornings that you don't recognize, maybe, again, step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Introduce yourself to them. Welcome them. Make them feel at home here. You know, there's a, a, a lot of things that you can do. Maybe there's someone that you know you don't get along with, and you're going to be with them. Choose before you go to forgive them. Before you go to spend time with them, choose Make the choice to love them. Even though you know they might not be loving in, in response to you. But again, ask the Lord what he wants you to do. He'll direct you. And then, so up to now, Jesus' response has been perfect. We would expect nothing less from God, the Son. And so, how would this religious lawyer answer? Look at verse 32. Well said, well said teacher, the man replied. You know, when he says, well said... It should really be an exclamation like, wow, that was awesome. Or, dude, that was amazing. Can you imagine this guy talking to Jesus and saying, you did a good job in answering this? Like, he's God. Of course he does a good job in answering this. But this religious scholar agrees with what Jesus has said. There's one true God. That God alone is worthy of our worship, our, our love and our devotion. To love God first and foremost, is more important than all the burnt offerings. This guy got that. Real religion, real Christianity is a matter of the heart. But it comes out in our actions, but it begins in our heart. It's a matter of the heart. And any ritual 
has no meaning at all apart from a genuine heart expression of love for Jesus and others. And we see this throughout the Old Testament as well. This isn't new to the New Testament. And you've got a couple references in Samuel and, and Proverbs, but Hosea 6 says this, for I desire loyalty, God says, not sacrifice. I want you to be loyal to me. I, I want the knowledge of me rather than burnt offerings. That's what God desires from us. And then it says in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And the next thing you have on your outline is this. However, being almost there is not being there. Jesus is after this man's soul. And he saw that the man's response was a genuine, spiritual, sincere response. And he compliments him on this. But at the same time, this is a warning. Because even though he was close, even though you're an inch from heaven, you'll you'll still spend an eternity in hell. If you're not in heaven. This man was near. How was he near? Well, he was near because he realized that loving God and loving others, and I'm quoting from verse 33, is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He was near because it says that the, he said the entire ceremonial system was not as important as loving God. He was getting this stuff. And this is actually way beyond what what we do sometimes. And we want to give God, look at all the good things I've done to get into heaven. This, This young lawyer was also near in that he wasn't so tied to his fellow scribes and Pharisees that it would keep him from acknowledging what he saw to be true. And he was near because he was courageous. He wasn't afraid of them. He was willing to risk being mocked, if you will, by his fellow scribes and Pharisees for what he said. And like I said earlier, John Wesley saw a lot of similarities between this man and him. Wesley had sat at the feet of his godly mother and learned from her, just like this man was sitting at Jesus' feet, so to speak, and learning from him. Like the scribe, Wesley knew about eternal things. Wesley was honest with those German missionaries that he was with, uh, someone who could really help him. And this scribe was being honest with Jesus. And like the scribe, he wasn't worried about pleasing people. Wesley wasn't. But with all of this, Wesley was near, but he was still not in the kingdom of God. And even though he was a master at practicing all of these external disciplines like Bible study and prayer and all these other things, Wesley, he said, those things gave me no assurance that I was truly right with God, that I had come to faith in him. But he was aware of one thing that was helpful. He knew he was a sinner. As good of a person as he was, he knew he was a sinner. (laughs) You know, if we could line up every single person 
from the border all along the coast of California. And we said to everyone, we want you to swim to Hawaii. We would all fail. Some would die in the first wave. Uh, I actually looked it up online to see the guy who had, or the person who had the, the, the distance record for swimming. And it's a Croatian man. I, I looked at his name. Someone pronounced, uh, I, I, I could try to pronounce it, but it's Rogosic or something like that, Rogosic. Anyway, he swam 139.8 miles. That's a long ways to swim across the Adriatic Sea. So double that, triple that. It doesn't come anywhere close to the 2,500 miles it is from here to Hawaii. We all fall short of who God is, of God's glory. We talk about being a seeker or being an inquirer or being a pilgrim in our spiritual lives. Those are all great. They can certainly be part of one's life story. But none of those can be an end in themselves. The journey is important, but it's not about the journey. It's about arriving at the destination. And, And we have to make it into the kingdom or the journey is of no use whatsoever. Did the young lawyer make it into the kingdom of God? We don't know. We can guess. If he did, it was because of his recognition that loving God was more important than all of the sacrifices. And hopefully that knowledge moved him to repent from his sin and to put his faith and trust in Christ alone for his salvation. The greatest discovery is that we're sinners in need of a savior and that we cannot live without the grace of God. And we have to cast ourselves on that that grace of God and on his mercy. And we receive the gift of faith and we repent and we, we, we put our trust in Christ alone. That's what happened to John Wesley. His time in America brought him to the end of himself, he said. And that led him to these German believers, back to them, because he was with them on his way. He got back and he seeks them out again. And Wesley then is led to read the passage that we just read. And then here's what he writes in his journal, John Wesley. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a Bible study. You ever gone unwillingly to a Bible study? And then glad you went after you got there? in Aldersgate Street, where the leader was reading Luther's, Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the epistle to the Romans. At 8.45 p.m., while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I decided at that moment, 8.45, to put my trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And God gave me an assurance through his word in Romans 8 that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And Wesley became a Christian. And he came to faith in Christ and he became a very dynamic preacher. 
He preached the gospel to anyone who would listen. He preached to field workers, people working in the fields. He preached in mines to mine workers. He preached in the city on city streets. He rode, again, no cars. He rode on horseback 4,500 miles a year. That's about 12 miles a day for nearly 50 years. Think about that. He preached 42,000 sermons. That's two or three a day for 50 years. And when he was 83 years old, he wrote this in his diary. I amaze myself. I am never tired either of preaching or writing or traveling at 83 after having done it for 50 years. So what are the lessons that we can take away? Well, before we get to the lessons, let me just read what one commentator, how they summed up this passage. I thought this was brilliant. Convictions not acted on die. Truths not followed fade. Lingering can become a habit. And we can go further in or we can go further out. Sometimes maybe you feel like life is a merry-go-round and you're on the very edge. You know what happens when you step toward the center is there is a center. You don't feel like things are just going crazy again. So what are you doing to step toward the center and get to know God better? And this comes down at the very, the basis of this is our salvation. So number one, it's entirely possible to grow up in the church, to have godly parents and never come to a personal saving knowledge of Jesus. It's possible to study theology, even the Greek New Testament, and never become a true Christian. It's possible to hear the grace of Christ preached all your life and still be relying on your own goodness. And it's possible to fool everyone, even the pastor, and not go to heaven. You know, as I was reflecting on this, I I think that oftentimes we pray, I find myself praying a lot of times safe prayers. So I want to invite you to join me this year in praying some dangerous prayers. What's a dangerous prayer? Well, a dangerous prayer is, um, Lord, pour out my life as a drink offering. I want to give my life to others. I want to serve them. Lord, make my life a miracle, which means I need to step out of my comfort zone, which I need to bring my life in obedience to God and his word. Lord, make me like Jesus. That's a dangerous prayer. Lord, use me. Will you use me? That means I need to be available. Are you available? Maybe there's things you need to clear out of your schedule so you can be available for God to use you. When we pray those kinds of prayers, it's about God and it's about others. It's not about us. It's like what Paul wrote. And so please think about this question. Are you near to the kingdom of God but not in? And if you're in, are you on the outside or are you doing everything you can to get to the center and closer to him. 
The cross tells us that Jesus loved God supremely. It tells us that he loves us genuinely. And that's what he wants us to do. So this is what John wrote in 1 John. Listen carefully to this. Dear friends, this is from 1 John 4. Let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. We love each other and as we do that here, we get the strength to go out and love people in between Sundays, the people that are in our homes and and the people that we have contact with. Two great commands, the two greatest loves. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if there's someone here this morning who has never responded to you, will you draw them to yourself? We thank you for the greatness of the wisdom of your son. But we thank you that even though he's this incredible teacher, and what a teacher he is, we're so grateful that he doesn't save us by what he said, but by what he did not by his teaching that we have to live up to, but by his death for us on the cross that we receive by grace. We want to love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind like Jesus loved you. And we want to love our neighbor like Jesus loved us perfectly by dying for us in our place. And Lord, we commit this day and this new year to you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Well, God bless you. Please find someone near you that you don't know and introduce yourself to them and wish them a happy new year.